You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we have our champion and a true world leader in ovarian cancer, Dr. Shannon Weston. So Dr. Weston is professor and director of Gynecologic Oncology Center at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and of, uh, she is the uh, principal investigator of multiple novel treatment trials for gynecologic cancers. Dr. Weston is globally recognized as a tremendous expert in ovarian cancer. A true champion of Overcome, as our leadership council member, Dr. Weston always shares her tremendous knowledge with us in honor of all our overcomers worldwide. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Weston about all things ovarian cancer. Have your coffee ready. I have mine. <laughs> and let's connect over coffee and there you go oh wait you can't see it there it is I have my coffee I'm very festive today (laughs) that's fantastic and so um, if you have any questions as we go along please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed try to get it addressed post the discussion and as I always say please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these great insights Dr. Weston is about to share with us so with that a huge welcome back to you Dr. Weston to this episode of Connect Over Coffee you feature in on all our seasons so you're clearly <laughs> our favorite so welcome back Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat and uh, I look forward to a really great discussion today. Thank you, Dr. Weston. So speaking of great discussions, I'm going to ask you this state about the statement you made. So it says um, a little bit of excitement, a little bit of competition, maybe, but lots of options for our patients. Tell us more about this statement. Sure. I think we were, you know, at the time we were discussing just where things are going for patients with ovarian cancer, what options we have. And, you know, I, I think the, the statement basically stemmed from, we're seeing lots of exciting data coming out, some small studies, some bigger studies, um, and a lot of potential, um, new approvals. And so I think, you know, with that, um, when we see that much great data coming out and we see that many great outcomes coming for our patients. It's of course, very exciting, right? We want to move the needle. We want to push things forward. Um, And I think because there are certain targets that are catching fire in ovarian cancer, and of course we've talked about PARP a lot, but these are new targets, new drugs, new options. Um, There's a little competition to, to, get into the space as quick as possible and to, you know, get the biomarkers figured out and get the side effects figured out and get the efficacy figured out so we can, you know, get the drugs to our patients. And so I think um, that was where uh, that was where that statement came from. And and certainly I think shows my enthusiasm for uh, what we're being able to do right now in drug development. That's a wonderful start to the discussion and a great segue into my next question. Um, So my question was, um, tell us about the biomarkers, right? And how are they utilized to predict response and recurrence in gynecology cancers? And how many types of biomarkers are there now and evolving uh, when it comes to ovarian cancer? Sure. I mean, I think you know, depending on the gynecologic cancer, we have a lot of different um, kind of progress, right? So I think arguably the the gynecologic cancer with kind of the best um, biomarkers right now is endometrial cancer, where we've seen a ton of work with the Cancer Genome Atlas that identified that all endometrial cancers were not created equal. And in fact, there were four major types based on um, the molecular aberrations that were found. And in fact, there are groups that have done a really great job of trying to identify each of these four molecular groups with arguably a simple test. Um, And the reason I say arguably is because some of that testing involves pretty extensive molecular testing called next generation sequencing, which can be expensive and and hard to maybe get out to everybody um, across, you know, 
the world, like across countries, developing countries and others. And so it's exciting and the data are evolving around how we can use that testing for not only prognosis, but perhaps even making pragmatic choices about treatment. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the bar that we're looking to set, you know, as far as ovarian cancer is concerned, obviously the presence of BRCA mutations and, um, utilizing the homologous recombination deficiency testing has been, I, I think obviously BRCA has been being done for quite a bit of time. The HRD testing is, is moving along. Um, but we're still really working on exactly what that means for our patients, they they certainly seem prognostic. Um, BRCA is clearly predictive for benefit from PARP inhibitors and HRD to some degree is as well, but not as much as BRCA. So there's still, I think, some room for improvement of that test. But I think what's exciting about for, for ovarian cancer for biomarkers are the developing drugs that are not yet necessarily available to our patients yet. Um, we have high hopes that they will be. Um, and many of those do involve testing for a specific target or a specific biomarker. And so the thought process being, if a patient has that specific target or biomarker in her tumor, then this you know, drug may work better for her or, you know, may only work for her. So, um, so I think that's the kind of exciting place for biomarkers right now. Um, a lot of the trials that are exploring these drugs are working out how to do the testing at the same time. So you're seeing kind of co-development of drug and test. And so as these drugs maybe show ef efficacy and hopefully get approved, then it will be important to also get that testing out so we can identify those patients as quick as possible and give them this new novel drug if it's appropriate. Wonderful. So, um, and, you know, fortunately for majority of our patients, there seems to be a lot happening in the uh, platinum resistance space. And you are at the forefront or at the center of it of, of, of all this great um, you know, progress ongoing. So what are you most excited about when it comes to platinum resistant ovarian cancer and why? So I that's what we're gonna spend the rest of the time talking on, right? Yes. <laughs> it's yes. like a 40 minute discussion. No, so I will keep it brief, but I think there's a you know, some major areas that are of interest or excitement, right? So one are the antibody drug conjugates. And so this is a class of drugs. This is what I was getting at with the biomarker testing. And I'll, I'll just give a quick rundown on what they do. They're a really cool mechanism. They're basically a targeted high-dose chemotherapy. And so what you have is a lock and key mechanism where the drug looks for, is a key that looks for a specific lock on the tumor. And when they find themselves, it connects and then it's basically like a Trojan horse where when that lock and key happens, it the cancer cell pulls in the drug to internal to the cancer cell, and then it releases a high dose chemo, way higher than we could ever give by IV. It would be too toxic. Mm -hmm. And so we get this focused high dose chemotherapy inside the cancer cell and it implodes. And then you even get a little bit of bystander effect, meaning if a cell wasn't maybe expressing that lock as much, it will still potentially get hit by that chemo. So it's a really cool, like dual mechanism of action. And obviously it seems to be the next step in precision medicine where you're identifying, okay, who has the lock and then giving them the drug. And so there are a number of different targets that are under exp uh, exploration. Pr the drug that's the farthest along that you may have heard of is mervituximab which is targeting um, folate receptor alpha is, is the lock. And so that drug is under review right now at the FDA based on um, really nice results in, in the, um, the phase two studies that have been done and a confirmatory study is also being completed. And so um, the hopes are that it will get an accelerated approval followed by confirmation. Um, other, you know, targets that have been really interesting that we're seeing kind of early data on are um, a target called NAPI2B. There's a target called TROPE um, and a, uh, a target called B7H4. And this is not by any means all of them, but these are some of the ones that are um, most exciting, I would say, for um, 
for gynecologic cancers and specifically ovarian cancer. And really what, you know, I think a lot of us are hoping is to be able to do some type of panel where we check for all of these different locks and then say, okay, for you, you get this drug. And for you, you get this drug. And right now, all of the activity has been in the platinum resistant space for these drugs. Although I will say if these are positive, they will likely do what all good drugs do and move earlier um, with the goal of curing more patients and not having the development of platinum resistant disease. So, um, so I think that kind of class of agents is really exciting. The other thing I would just mention is um, that we're uh, seeing a lot of interest around immunotherapy, right? And we've, we've talked about immunotherapy before that some of the, you know, first generation immunotherapies, so-called checkpoint inhibitors haven't been that great for ovarian cancer. And so there's a number of different, you know, combination strategies that are being explored. Uh, but something that's that's really been interesting is um, the utilization of adoptive cell therapy. And so adoptive cell therapy is when, again, we have a target on a cell, right? And so we can take out the fighting T cells, the fighting immune cells, and make them, we engineer them to make them smarter, faster, stronger. Mm -hmm. And then we put them back into the patient with that scent, like a drug sniffing dog, basically. So again, this involves a biomarker that, that those cells are looking for. And so to qualify for any one of these adoptive cell therapies, the tumor has to express that lock. Okay. Mm -hmm. And once we have that sense, then that may work very well. And, you know, CAR T cell therapy has been great for, you know, lymphomas. My husband is, can talk about that for hours, but for solid tumors, it's been less exciting. And so we're finally starting to see some um, some exciting data towards targets like Prame and MAJ4, where we're seeing these drugs go into phase three studies for ovarian cancer. And so again, getting that, getting out a better precision medicine, in this case, precision immunotherapy, um, which would be, you know, a wonderful option and certainly is, um, is something that's being explored in, in platinum resistant disease as well. Um, and then I think the, the last, I mean, not, not the only other thing, but the last thing I'll mention is, you know, some novel takes on what we're already doing. So, you know, novel anti-angiogenics, you know, I think many of our listeners are familiar with like bevacizumab and how it targets the, the bad blood vessels. So there's a number of new drugs that are looking to kind of take that to the next level and overcome resistance in this space. And similarly, Everybody here has heard about PARP inhibitors. Those are DNA damage repair agents. And those, there's a number of really cool drugs that are in that space that are hoping that in situations where PARP doesn't work or PARP has failed a patient, can we utilize a, a new drug in this space and, and, and potentially offer other opportunities. And so I think there's a lot going on and it is certainly very exciting. Um, and so hopefully over the next few years, we'll see a lot of new approvals and a lot more precision medicine for the patients. So thank you for, for the great discussion and clarifications, but a um, few questions uh, follow up to what you just said, that for patients that uh, these are, from what I understand, um, for platinum resistant, right? So now, so with all these options coming in for the platinum resistant patients, how how would you, so how would you, you know, kind of choose the patients? Mm -hmm. Like who gets what kind of treatment? How would you do that going forward? And then um, we receive several questions and requests uh, throughout the course of, you know, a month or a week that, you know, there are clinical trials open, especially in immunotherapy, where patients are interested to sign up on clinical trials. However, there are only 13 openings or there are, you know, yeah. very few and very limited and or it is always said that your uh, provider can determine whether or not you can sign up for this clinical trial. So there are a, still a few barriers to, to getting there. So help us navigate that a little bit by, you know, answering um, how, first of all, how would you classify these patients and, and select them based on all these uh, this resistant treatment options coming forward? And then in terms of particularly for immunotherapy clinical trials, how can we make it easier for our patients to kind of enroll or at least get in 
the process. Yeah. So I think, you know, in regards to choosing what's best, a lot of it is going to depend on the tumor, right? So many of these new drugs really need a target, right? So for, for example, um, the uh, uh, antibody drug conjugates, a lot of them are selecting based on whatever the lock is. Right. Um, for the DNA damage repair agents, although we are broadly looking across all patients, we do expect them to work better in patients with specific mutations in that pathway, like BRCA or ATR or ATM or things like that. So there may be opportunities to use kind of what's going on in the patient's tumor to be able to guide those things. And I think if we're lucky enough to have all these drugs come into practice, then it'll be just like how we decide between a PARP inhibitor or something else, right? You know, who's in front of you, you know, what, what's the schedule like? Is it an IV infusion versus a pill? You know, what are the logistics involved and, and what does the patient prefer as far as the side effect profile and what the risks are? So I think that'll be like, I think I would love to be having those conversations. If I've got like four drugs that are op an option for my patient, I, I will be very happy. We will, <laughs> we'll be happy to kind of discuss, um, kind of which one's better at any given time. You know, as far as clinical trials, it is very hard, especially with um, some of these more advanced immunotherapy trials. When they first start, they really are just in a select group of patients um, because we want to make sure that they're not too toxic and we want to see if there's an early signal. But, you know, for example, some of the, the CAR T cell therapies are now moving forward in large phase three trials. So that's going to open it up for a large proportion of patients. But again, there's going to be testing involved and, and we have to see if it's the right choice for that patient. Right. So, so I, I do understand the struggle from the patient side, but I think it's important to know that it's really born out of a, an interest in keeping people safe and not treating too many people with either a drug that's toxic or a drug that doesn't work. So, you know, there's a method to the madness that, you know, we start with a smaller group because we we don't want to waste people's time. And it can be super frustrating as a patient because you want access to the, you know, newest agents as soon as possible, but it, you have to trust the process and, and you know, hope that that the, that if that drug is effective, that you'll get access to it if you didn't on an early trial. The other thing I would say is, as much as you're able, you know, getting involved with a, you know, a center that, you know, does research, right. And that can be either a comprehensive cancer center, or, you know, there are also, you know, excellent community programs where they do tons of trials. And so if you're in a facility where there aren't a lot of trials, then, you know, ask your doctor, well, is there somebody local? Cause I get it. Not everyone can fly to Houston or Memorial in New York or, you know, Boston, or, or wherever, but there likely there is a GOG foundation site near you. Mm -hmm. um, and often we see patients from all over the country at in Houston, but we end up putting them on trials somewhere closer to home, you know, because we can help them kind of say, okay, this trial is really an, a great option for you. And you can get it two hours away. Um, Cause for me, I just want patients to get access. I don't need them to be treated by me. I, I, I like them to be treated by me, but I'm well aware that not everyone lives in Houston and travel is expensive and we're away from family, et cetera. So there's a lot of other costs, right? Um, so, you know, getting access to a center that has trials, they can often help you find, you know, other sites if they don't have a particular trial that makes sense for you. Yeah, and that is so important because, you know, especially the new and upcoming trials and the work that you just mentioned, these are, these seem to be very sophisticated, which is fantastic. But I mean, I sometimes have concerns as to whether the community center hospitals will even know about these things, you know, in real time. So it's important to stay connected with what's ongoing, what's coming up so that the patients can ask informed questions. So thank you, Dr. Weston. Um, so, and we, again, great segue into my next question. I was going to ask you about the, you know, the promising clinical trials that you are running and what is exciting about them and what do you want our overcomers to know and how can they enroll in the trials that you may be running in this space? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, this is another question that could take <laughs> the whole rest of the the discussion. But I, you know, I I think that um, that we have a number of really interesting things. I think, you know, 
I'll I'll highlight my colleague first, Dr. Jaziri um, is doing quite a bit of innovative immunotherapy uh, along those lines of what I just mentioned with the um, adoptive cell therapy, those CAR T cells where we, you know, uh, re-engineer your fighting immune cells to fight your cancer. And so he's been really leading the way with that, as well as using um, something called tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, where we actually take out the fighting T cells from your tumor. So we know they're smart and they found the tumor and then we multiply them and put them back in to fight. So he's, he's done a lot of, um, of great work with that. You know, as far as other trials that we have right now, you know, for, for patients with um, BRCA mutations or HRD um, that have had PARP inhibitors and subsequently experienced a recurrence, um, we have an option to try to resensitize those tumors to PARP utilizing um, ATR inhibitors. And so we give a combination strategy in that space. And we're seeing a lot of exciting outcomes there. Um, and that trial is still actively enrolling. Um, we have another trial that's just about to open that I think a lot of our overcomers have heard about because we get calls about it on the daily. Um, this is a collaboration with Rice University where they had a really um, very cool, uh, basically, uh, technology where they can engineer agents um, to express specific, you know, we, they engineer these basically little tiny um, uh, the drug factory implants. Yeah. So yeah. they, I'm sorry, I'm having a break, but it's basically like these little kind of circles. <laughs> and yeah, and I wish I could show you a picture. Yeah, they are these, called the uh, drug factory implants. Well, yeah, it's an encapsulated cell therapy. Yeah. And basically they take regular cell lines and then they can express something, right? And so they can use a number of different, they can express a number of different targets. Um, but there are these basically little capsules that get injected. And I'm sorry, I couldn't think of the word capsules for some reason. Go figure. Um, but they get injected at the time of a laparoscopic surgery, and then they are absorbed into the tumor cells. And specifically, the the drug that's the far, farthest along expresses something called IL-2. Yes, which is an immune, uh, it was a cytokine and has been known to be very toxic to cancer cells. But unfortunately, when we give it systemically or IV, it's very toxic to humans. And so it's really hard to get an adequate dose that will fight cancer that doesn't, you know, make people miserable or very sick. And so what this does is it's basically this encapsulated cell that really then starts to express IL-2 and kills the cancer cell once it's been absorbed. Um, so it's very interesting. It's very cool. It is um, about to open um, and will be one of the sites where the, will be the first site to open, uh, but it's really unlike anything that we've ever done before. And so we're very enthusiastic about it. And in fact, um, Rice did such a great job of um, advertising that we've had multiple patients like, when is it opening? When is it opening? And so, um, so hopefully soon, uh, like in the next few weeks. Um, so I think that's another really kind of novel thing that that we've been um, collaborating on that we're really excited about. That's wonderful because uh, Omid, who is the uh, PI for this uh, for for this particular trial, Omid has actually spoken at one of our events, and he has also been a, a an episode guest at Connect Over Coffee. I have visited his lab, have seen all those capsules that he's you know he's kind of working on. So yes, I mean our overcomers are supremely excited about this particular trial because it seems like it can be a really good. Um, option for patients, particularly for the ones that have possibly exhausted the, you know, the, the options per se. So yeah. Um, yeah, I was very excited to know that you are leading your, you're the medical, the clinical uh, lead for this uh, trial, because we have high hopes on this one. And I hope yeah, everything goes too. well, because it, it is very promising. So thank you for for sharing more information on that. And I know that we will get more questions on from our overcomers <laughs> yes. how they may enroll. And so um, overcomers will keep uh, will keep updating you with information on this particular trial as we go along. As you know, Dr. Weston is leading this now with uh, Dr. Vesa. So it's all, you know, it's all good, going to be great. So, um, Dr. Weston, my next question is that, you know, as we are talking about clinical trials, we also understand that they may come with some side effects, right, for each patient, and um, they're advised, we understand they're advised to review the information before they uh, commit to it. So, 
from your experience in running so many of these trials, you know, what guidance would you give to our overcomers um, as to, you know, kind of best preparing for the clinical trials and um, decide whether or not this is right for them based on the possible results or the side effects? Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes down to ensuring that the informed consent process is appropriate and making sure that you get all the information you can. You know, most sites, when they're discussing a trial with you, will one of the biggest pieces is, you know, what's the chance of benefit? Like, why this trial for you? Right. So why is this the right choice? And again, is that biomarker based? Is that, you know, just that? there's platinum sensitive disease, platinum resistant disease, like what is the expectation mm -hmm. for benefit? And then how much is known about toxicity, right? So there's going to be varying degrees of um, knowledge about what's expected based on where that trial is, right? So for later phase trials, the drug has been used quite a bit already, right? And it's going for its final approval. And so you should really get a pretty thorough discussion of the expectations of um, side effects down to like 10% of patients have this, uh, more than 20% of patients had this. So you can really get kind of nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. For some of the earlier phase trials, it's going to be more, this is what we anticipate based on what happened in, you know, testing with um, animals and, and things like that. Right. And so obviously we we use these animal models to, to know what potential toxicities to anticipate when, when we treat patients, um, when we treat humans, but there are sometimes there are some unknowns. And so understanding exactly how early that drug is in development and, you know, what the potential risks are, but, you know, for example, this, like this drug, we just talked about the encapsulated, um, IL-2. I mean, this has not been used in humans at all, but in animals, the side effect profile was awesome. This, the toxicities were minimal. And so the expectation is that will be the same, but there's some unknown. Uh, but, you know, of course, based on what we see in the early preclinical studies of that drug, we anticipate this is potentially a game changer for patients. And so weighing, you know, that, and some patients may say, you know what, I don't want to be the first patient to get something and that's okay. Right. You have to feel comfortable. Um, I can guarantee you there will be somebody that will <laughs> want to be that patient. Um, you know, so I think that it, it's just a matter of kind of where you are. And we often talk about, you know, when we talk about new innovations um, of any kind, and that can be out of medicine too, right? We talk about there are early adopters and then, you know, there are people that kind of need to see more data and everything that, that same goes for new drugs, right? So it, it's, you know, it really comes down to a personal decision around, you know, what are those risks? How much is known? And, you know, what are you willing to kind of accept? You know, I think also from, you know, clinical trials outside of, adverse events and toxicity, you also have to consider the commitment, right? So what is it going to involve for you on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? How many visits, you know, how many blood draws, how many EKG, you know, what is, what's involved, how many biopsies and, and things like that, and making sure you understand why you need to get all those things and that you're willing to do that. Um, and that especially comes true, you know, for for if you don't live in the city where you're getting treated, right? And we see this a lot in Houston. Um, you know, so we, you know, we make sure that patient has a clear calendar and understands when she and her family are going to need to come back and forth and, you know, how long those those trips are going to take. And, and that way they can determine if that's something that they can invest right then and there. You know, and of course it's always nice when trials pay for transportation and things like that, but that's not always possible. And so it really is, you know, an investment of time and resources sometimes to go on some of these. And, and that's why I mentioned before, we're always interested if we've got a trial that's open in multiple sites, you know, to try to get a, a patient on at a site that's closest to her and her family so that it can be as convenient as possible. And thank you, Dr. Weston, for breaking it down for us. But I'll say that, you know, one thing that you have al always emphasized on, and I think it's important for us to, again, reemphasize is the safety and the efficacy of the trials. I mean, you know, even though you are signing up as an early adopter, you are certainly not risking 
your life per se because you, because of the way the trials are um, designed and how the how it's monitored. Um, like you always say that if it is not working well for a particular patient, we make sure that she gets off the trial immediately without you know any harm. So I think that's important for all of us to understand that there is possibly no harm, even though. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I think you need to understand that. But conversely, I mean, there are deaths on trials, right? And I'm not trying to be a, a, a downer or anything, but it can happen. Yeah. Um, it's rare. I, you know, there's always different reports coming out. It's it's typically something like 1%. So it, in the thousands and thousands of patients that are treated on trials, but it is something to be, to be mindful of. We do, you know, depending on how early the trial phases, I mean, the monitoring can be really intense and it's all about making sure we're ensuring patient safety. And, you know, all of these agents and trials have gone through, you know, extensive vetting right. by, you know, at the FDA kind of nationally and even to the local IRB level to make sure that above all, you know, patient safety is prioritized. And so I think you can feel comfortable in that process. Um, but you, it, it is a risk, right. And, and the side effects can be simple, right. They can be like a little cough or, you know, some nausea that you can treat with medications. It also could be blood clots, right. And that, and, you know, you wind up in the hospital with, you know, so there's definitely, you know, those are, those more severe risks are much more rare, but they're there. Right. And if there's a risk of it, someone's going to get it probably. Right. So we, we want to make sure we know who, and there's actually a lot of really cool research and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but trying to anticipate who gets those toxicities. Cause obviously that would be ideal if in addition to understanding which patient's stand to benefit the most from a, an agent, it would also really be great to know who is at the most risk um, from side effects, right? So I think that's that's an area of great interest in, and research as well. Thank you for your um, candid comments on that. Much appreciated. So um, we, we briefly touched upon PARP, but we know that a lot more is happening in this space, right? And so uh, you being an expert on this, can you tell us more about um, uh, what's happening, what's the latest on PARP, and also which combination, there are quite a few, right, combination regimens with PARP, uh, which is the most promising that's appearing to be in ovarian cancer, and are they applicable in all types of ovarian cancer? Yeah, those are great questions. You know, I think it's probably a little too soon to tell which combinations are the best. I think I can certainly tell you about some of my favorites. You know, I really like the combination strategies that target DNA damage repair in two places, because I think what we've learned about targeted therapy in general is there are certainly some patients for whom, you know, one agent is enough, but the majority will have the development of resistance in their tumor. And so if we can avoid that resistance by targeting two different pathways, um, within that same overarching damage repair, DNA damage repair space, it makes sense that potentially we could avoid that, um, that resistance. And certainly we're also seeing the opportunity to overcome that resistance if it's already existing to basically resensitize tumors. And, and, you know, some of the, the targets that I've already mentioned, like ATR um, is of great interest. Um, we, you know, we published quite a bit on we one inhibitors, and their ability to do that. We're seeing different checkpoint inhibitors as well as um, you know, new novel agents like pole theta inhibitors. So there's a lot of really cool stuff out there um, that potentially has an opportunity to combine well with PARP and overcome resistance. I also think there are some new targets that may even be standalone, right? So maybe not even need to combine with PARP, but potentially overcome resistance in that space. Um, you know, by by targeting other portions of the DNA damage repair pathway. So I think I think all of those are very exciting. Now, and of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, the combination of PARP inhibitors with immunotherapy and 
anti-angiogenics like bevacizumab because we have five major trials that have all completed in the frontline setting um, that we're waiting on data for. And of course, are hoping those data will be positive because thousands of women were treated on those trials and we're, you know, we, we want good results. So those will start reporting probably over the next year or two. I don't know when, um, but, you know, I, I think we've seen some kind of interesting small studies of the, the triple drug combination, especially that seem to be active regardless of, um, of the presence of a BRCA mutation or HRD. So that's of course, very exciting because that's arguably one of the greatest unmet needs for patients with ovarian cancer is what do we do when we don't have that biomarker, right? Especially in the upfront setting. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful that that combination will be successful um, and that that will change the standard of care for, for patients with frontline disease. Sounds like there's a lot coming up and it's lots of things on the horizon, which is amazing. So thank you. So speaking of, you know, we have talked about things that have that has worked, right? So let's talk about things that have not worked um, in terms of clinical trials or studies in progress. Um, what should we know of uh, the, uh, the trials or the, the things that didn't work out, treatments that didn't work out for ovarian cancer, so we can all stay more, um, you know, uh, in knowledge uh, as far as ovarian cancer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, that we've started seeing some of the um, novel agents get reported that we were, you know, we're hoping we're going to be um, positive that we're not. Um, I think there is a, an agent called VB111 or, gosh, I'm going to brutalize it, Ophrogene. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stop right there. But it was a, it was kind of a neat gene therapy that targeted both anti-angiogenic VEGF and stimulated the immune system. So it seemed like it was going to be a really cool strategy. Um, and it was combined with uh, weekly paclitaxel, which is a standard of care in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And unfortunately it didn't meet the mark. Um, and so I, I mentioned this only not to take that drug down, but, you know, there were some early studies that looked fairly promising, um, and enough so that a phase three trial is undertaken. But, you know, unfortunately when, you know, when that larger number of patients was treated, it didn't seem to offer any kind of improvement, um, over the chemotherapy alone. So, you know, I think, we're still waiting on results from a lot of other studies. I, I think I will mention that this is kind of an interesting set, uh, story around um, the mervituximab agent that we mentioned. That's the antibody drug conjugate mm -hmm. or the targeted chemotherapy that targets folate receptor alpha. You know, initial studies of that drug were exciting, right? Early phase. Mm -hmm. And then they had a larger uh, randomized study that actually was negative. Mm -hmm. Um and it's a testament to the investigators and to the company that they persisted because what they realized was it was negative because of the way they were testing the tumors and that they weren't, again, identifying the right patients that would benefit from the drug. So they went back to the drawing board, kind of revamp, you know, reassessed their testing and, and actually went back to an older test they were using that was better. Mm -hmm. And redid the trials. And so that's where we saw the Soraya data that were positive because again, they selected the right patient and that those are the data that are under um, review by the FDA will hopefully, you know, achieve an approval. So I mentioned that not to say, oh, this drug doesn't work, but to say, you know, the initial studies weren't positive right. and we did a, they did a great job of saying, okay, like, let's regroup here because we know this is a good drug. And instead of just flinging it out the window, let's reassess who we're treating yeah. and make sure we're treating the right patients and it worked. So, um, so I think that that's, that's a, definitely a lesson learned that, you know, it's not one size fits all. And that really selecting the right patient for the, or the right drug for the right patient um, or vice versa is, is the right thing to do. Um, in regards to what you were saying about kind of, you know, do these agents kind of apply to all ovarian cancers, right? So I think that might've been in the last question and I, I didn't cover it, but I'll just mention, I think this is where the excitement around utilizing molecular testing to guide therapy is, is really kind of borne out because 
it doesn't necessarily matter the histology, right? We're starting to see more and more drugs that get approved just based on biomarker. Mm -hmm. And so we're really enthusiastic about getting kind of full testing for our patients, you know, seek large amounts of sequencing across a number of genes, because if a patient has a rare abnormality for which there's a drug that can change that patient's life. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, that that's where some of the excitement is. So this potentially could reach beyond kind of the traditional kind of garden variety, high grade serous ovarian cancer, and then instead, you know, potentially be something that can be explored in low grade serous or clear cell or mm -hmm. other types. And so I think um, that's where kind of the promise of precision medicine is um, really exciting. And in fact, some of those rare tumor types have different abnormalities than um, high grade serous, and they may have different other options for drugs um, for which we wouldn't use kind of for that high grade serous population. Thank you, um, Dr. Weston. As, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, uh, just a thought popped in my head. You are also in the endometrial space uh, big time, right? So there are patients who uh, present with endometrial. I mean, it's not the majority, but there are a few, right? So that um, present with endometrial, but then progress to have ovarian cancer as a secondary or vice versa. So first of all, how many patients do you see that off the top of your head that that qualify for either um, or and then for those patients who have both endometrial and ovarian do they what is I mean do they have some unique characteristics that make them um, different in terms of the treatment options that you could offer to them talk to us a little bit about that yeah I mean I think um, it, it's certainly it's, it's not extensively common, but we do see it, right? Um, where people have both, it all depends on the stage of disease, right? So sometimes we see a patient with early stage endometrial cancer subsequently develop an ovarian cancer. Sometimes we diagnose them at the same time. Um, unfortunately, it can make it a little troublesome from trial enrollment standpoint, right? Because a lot of clinical trials will exclude patients that have multiple primary tumors. Mm -hmm. um, and so that of course is a consideration. Um, once we're, if we're just treating somebody in kind of clinical practice, it involves kind of teasing out if there's, you know, metastatic disease or recurrent disease, is it related, which cancer is it related to, which cancer are we treating, right? So, cause that's gonna guide, you know, and there's a very different group of treatments um, for patients with metastatic endometrial cancer as compared to ovarian cancer. Although we start with paclitaxel and carboplatin, after that, they really kind of veer off into very different um, dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so some of the way that we can determine that is by getting you know molecular testing on the metastases or the, the areas that are outside of the primary to understand, okay, this potentially is being driven by the endometrial cancer. This is being driven by the, the ovarian cancer. And, and what does that all mean? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a struggle, um, but that's why where I think really making sure you're going to a center that has excellent pathology mm -hmm. so they can confirm that this is not all in fact related to one cancer, but is, is truly dual primaries is really important. And then um, really getting that, that molecular testing to understand what the tumor may best respond to. Yeah, I mean, definitely much more complex than treating one particular kind of cancer uh, versus two primary versus one progressing to the other, like all different, I understand that. So, um, so you are also a surgeon, a very well-renowned surgeon. So talk to us about some of the uh, surgical advances that are happening in the space um, recently. And um, tell us about your thoughts on the uh, LANCE trial. And also tell us what LANCE is first for sure. those. Are, yeah. And tell us about what you think. Yeah. I mean, I think um, before I talk about Lance, I think one of the other kind of the, one of the other surgical advances that that we've been involved with and Nicole Fleming has really been leading the way um, is the identification of tumor intraoperatively. So what I mean by that is, 
you know, for, for patients that have already received chemotherapy that are going for a subsequent surgery during their primary therapy, we often see, you know, treated tumor and there's always a struggle in understanding where there's active disease versus where it's maybe just old scar Mm -hmm. and how extensive of a resection is necessary because we always want to get to that goal of no gross residual. Mm -hmm. And so she's doing some great work utilizing um, different things like dyes that help us identify active tumor or even um, something called the mass spec pen, which is we actually get protein readings and based on the level, they can say, oh, that's cancer or that's not. Mm-hmm. So these are really novel new technologies that are still in trials, but you know potentially could be game changers for us as surgeons mm-hmm. so that we do what's necessary, but don't do more than, more right. than is needed, right? Because with every portion of the procedure, the risk goes up. And of course, you know, we want to avoid things like bowel resections or spleen resections or things like that. If it's not going to help the patient, mm. we're happy to do it and we're ready to do it if it's going to lead to a better outcome. But if in fact, that little nodule on the spleen is not active cancer, then, you know, this patient can retain her organ <laughs> and, mm. and, you know, have lower risk. So I think that's some, some of the stuff that that's ongoing, that's really exciting. Um, and then uh, Dr. Alejandra Rahine is leading the Lance trial. Mm-hmm. which is looking at in that same space. So patients that have had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and now need their interval tumor reductive surgery is looking at understanding if we could do that surgery through minimally invasive techniques. So right. traditionally this surgery has been a big open incision, usually from the pubis up almost to the ribs. Um, and, you know, an, an extensive resection is performed, but for some patients, um, for whom the imaging looks negative, right? It looks like all of the disease has gone away mm-hmm. and their CA125 is normalized. And the there are some um, some surgeons that have been doing this minimally invasively, which could be the right thing. Um, but Dr. Rauhine, it's a testament to his um, excellent skill set that he said, you know what, we need to do, we need to do the right study. We need to determine if we're helping patients or if we're missing things and we're going to hurt patients with this. And so this is what his study is doing. So the Lance study is randomizing patients for, um, that have, you know, their tumors have responded very well to neoadjuvant and they get randomized to either an open surgery or a minimally invasive surgery. And that can be done either, you know, laparoscopically or utilizing the robotic system based on surgeon preference and patient preference. And so, um, and they're looking at outcomes to make sure that this isn't hurting patients. And so, um, that's really exciting. You know, I'm hopeful it's going to be positive. Obviously we, you know, we minimally invasive patients bounce back faster. Sure. They, you know, they have less overall issues. Although, um, I think patients do very well with exploratory laparotomies. Now we use something called enhanced recovery that has improved outcomes markedly. Um, but any opportunity not to have a big incision, um, as long as it's, you know, it's consistent and the, the outcomes are the same or better. Um, that's what we want. So, um, so we're, you know, he, that, that trial's enrolling very well. It's open all over the world. Um, and, um, and he is an excellent investigator. So we're really excited to see, you know, what the results are for that. Wonderful. So, uh, switching gears just a little bit. Um, so this is a question that, that we have in mind for you that if you were to connect over coffee with an overcomer, um, you know, sitting down with a cup of coffee, what would you <laughs> tell her about the state of ovarian cancer in five years? It's a big question. Um, you know, I, I think that throughout this discussion today, I think I've told you about so many things that I'm really excited about and where we have hold such great potential. So, you know, I'm, I'm, my bottom line is I'm hopeful that, you know, we're going to see patients living longer um, and hopefully curing more patients. I already think we're doing that at least for the patients that have BRCA that are getting PARP inhibitors. So that's clearly a place where, where things have improved markedly, uh, but we need to raise the bar for everyone else. Um, and so I'm hopeful that some of these targeted agents that are, yes, being explored in platinum resistant will potentially be able to give us better benefit in that upfront setting. Um, and so I hope that over the next five years, we'll have seen uh, greater strides across all patients. Um, 
with ovarian cancer are not, you know, just those specific uh, BRCA selected patients. And again, I'm very excited about what we've been able to do there, but, um, but I'm really hopeful that, that we'll have expanded that benefit across more of the population. Wonderful. So this has been a great discussion. Um, I am just curious to know that uh, what's that one initiative on your whiteboard um, that you have now that wasn't there 30 days ago? Well, I am. Um, no, I'm going to tell you because I just took over, you know, as you mentioned, as the center medical director. So I'm in charge of the clinic operations for the gynecological oncology center. And so my whiteboard is now filled with ways to improve our patients' experience as they're moving through their, their journey in our center, in our clinic. Um, and so I definitely, any overcomers that are listening that are current <laughs> and Anderson patients, if you have some things that you would like changed, um, let me know so I can add it to my uh, laundry list <laughs> on the whiteboard that I'm trying to improve. So your whiteboard is currently white and accepting all kinds of ideas. And, and well, it's it's already filling up, but it's it's got plenty of space. <laughs> As I'm doing my learning tour of what's going right and what's going wrong, I definitely would love to get uh, get some patient experience. Yeah, I didn't even know I asked you such a relevant question. Like, oh my gosh, so relevant! I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got a lot of thoughts about this one. <laughs> wonderful. Um, wonderful. We, we wish you continued success in your new role. And we have ideas. So we'll be not shy in sending you all of those. So stay tuned on that. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Weston, for all your uh, brilliant advice, information, guidance that you provided to us today. Just in closing, my last question, as always, um, what message of overcoming would you have for our audience? We have a lot of reasons to have a lot of hope and, um, and you deserve that. And so if you're not getting that where you are, you need to, to find a place where, um, where you can feel that because that, um, definitely has a huge impact on, um, on your overall outcomes. We, we need our mindset positive as we can. Um, and so I think there's a lot of reasons to be positive for, uh, for patients with ovarian cancer, and we're going to continue to push. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Your um, your ideas and your inspiration was uh, very well appreciated and acknowledged, and we love your background. It's all festive and beautiful, just <laughs> in time for the holiday season. And as you mentioned, this was this artwork was done by a child, uh, a pediatric cancer patient, which makes it so much more special. Yes. So thank you for sharing that with us as well. Um, so again, thank you for your time and your knowledge that you freely share with us each time. And again, you are our featured speaker for all seasons on all seasons. <laughs> coffee. and um, overcomers hope this was beneficial for you I know I learned a lot from Dr. Weston as I do every every time she um, uh, joins our episodes and so um, keep watching and uh, share this uh, video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all the great insights that Dr. Weston shared with us today and we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon until then you keep overcoming thank you and bye thank you for joining us make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.